Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and we are glad you're listening in. March is International Women's Month, and at Beeson, we want to take this opportunity to shine a light on the ways in which God has used women throughout the history of redemption. Today's guest is an expert on the women of the Bible and women in early church history as well. She also happens to be a friend of both Kristen and me, and we are delighted to have her on the program. Kristen, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about her? Yes, thank you, Doug, and hello, everyone. We have with us today Dr. Lynn Kohick. Lynn is Provost and Dean of Academic Affairs at Northern Seminary in Chicago. She is a well-known New Testament scholar, having published a number of books, including a commentary on Ephesians in the New International Commentary of the New Testament and Philippians in the Story of God Bible Commentary. And she's also written a couple of books on women in the Bible and early church that we're going to talk with her about today. And then I'm most proud to say that she is an advisory board member of Beeson Center for Women in Ministry. So thank you, Lynn, for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And yeah, we know each other from from way back. Sometimes we talk about being old friends, but I'm of the age now where I don't say old friends anymore. It, uh. It's a little too. <laughs> Actually, this morning I was listening to a podcast about news items, and it happened to be on the strike of Major League Baseball. And one of the things I know about Doug, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the earliest conversations we had was about your love of baseball. That must have been when my son was playing a lot. That's right. That's right. I remember you talking about that. And I don't really have a love for baseball, but knowing that we'd be talking today, my ears perked up. And I hope by the time this uh, podcast airs, the potential strike will not materialize and opening day will start on time. Mm. <laughs> well, I remember Lynn, you and I met over dinner at one of the annual meetings. I don't remember if it was ETS or SBL, but just immediately loved talking to you and finding a kindred spirit. And so it's a joy for both of us to have you on the show today. Uh, We always like to begin by learning more about you. And I know you've been on the podcast before with Dr. George uh, when he was host. But for those who have not listened to that episode, I wonder if you can introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit more about where you're from and what you're up to these days. Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks again for inviting me onto this great podcast. I was born in Pittsburgh, and so I kind of feel like that is my hometown, even though I didn't grow up there, but my grandparents did, and we took summer trips there as a family. But I grew up in um, Pennsylvania, more in the central part of Pennsylvania. Uh, My parents still live there. My husband also grew up in that area. But about 2000, we moved to Wheaton, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. And that's where we are living now in another suburb, but also in Chicagoland. So I would say for the last 20 years, I think of Chicago as uh, as my home. And what am I up to now? Well, as uh, my administrative responsibilities increase, um, I'm 
up to my eyeballs sometimes in curriculum or load sheets or, <laughs> but I'm also uh, having a lot of fun here at Northern Seminary, starting a new MA in Women and Theology. And next fall, a uh, Doctor of Ministry in Women, Theology and Leadership, which connects so much with what Beeson is doing as well with the center there. So it's exciting to see just how how this conversation about women serving in the church has just ignited in a variety of places um, around the country. It's exciting. That's a great segue to my next question. Kristen mentioned at the top of the show, Dr. Koek, that you've written several books, but there's a couple of them that deal with women in particular. One is called Women in the World of the Earliest Christians. One is called Christian Women in the Patristic World. Would you tell our listeners just a little bit about how you became interested in these subjects and and why you wrote those books? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Well, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, which I did, I think, in 2009 is when it came out. That was my response to a book that one of my advisors in graduate school had written. Her name is Ross Kramer, and she wrote a book called Her Share of the Blessing. And it was a was part of her own research into the religion of the Greco-Roman world, especially women, it's it's women's religion and religious experiences in, in this first century AD, Jewish, pagan. And, and then I wanted looked a little bit at Christianity. And I loved her book. I, I wanted to put it into a um, a key or the ideas that she had, the the history that she was unpacking, put it in a context or or in a key, maybe I should say it that way, in a key that my students and my fellow evangelicals would be better able to connect with. So thinking about women at this time in relation to what women were doing in the New Testament. So I wanted to bring all this great information that was coming to light from the 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, and put it in a format that evangelicals could could access. The idea was sort of that when you go in to look at uh, a biblical text, let's say the Canaanite woman coming to, to Jesus and asking that he heal her daughter. What would be the cultural dimensions of, of that interchange? That was what I wanted my book, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, to kind of set up. So I wasn't going to exegete the biblical text so much as kind of say, here's the social dynamics, here are the cultural dynamics to help people kind of step back in time 2,000 years. <laughs> Lynn, what about your other book, Christian Women in the Patristic World? What were you doing in that one? Right. So the Christian Women in the Patristic World grew out of my sense that there's a, you either have a love or a hate of, <laughs> of, the, of the church fathers, the, the time after the New Testament, the couple of centuries up maybe through the fifth or sixth century, where the church is uh, getting formed, and you you have the councils, you have the creeds produced. It goes from being um, a persecuted minority to being one of the religions of the empire. And there's a lot of misinformation, I think, about how the church at that period 
treated women or how women lived out their faith. And I remember when I was in graduate school, two particular experiences that really fueled my my desire to write on it. The first was I did a paper on Julian of Norwich, who lived in the late 14th century, and she wrote a book based on her vision. It's called Showing. And she talked about Jesus Christ as our true mother. And she was reflecting on how the Eucharist or communion is our you know, spiritual food and how Jesus feeds us. So that, but she, but her image was Jesus Christ as our true mother. And that was such a beautiful picture. And there's some other really great things in her recounting of her vision that were theologically rich. And I thought, why don't I know about this woman? That she's she's an incredible theologian. And then I had another experience reading Tertullian. And he lived right around the late 100s into the 200s. And he is famous or infamous for saying that women are the devil's gateway. And he writes this in a treatise that's entitled On the Apparel of Women or On the Clothing of Women. And he's talking specifically about Eve and how she sinned and kind of opened the door then that she was the devil's gateway. She opened the door for sin to enter into the human experience there at the garden. Well, you know, that's quite unflattering, (laughs) you know, that what Tertullian said about all women bearing the shame of Eve, all women are, uh, can be known as the devil's gateway. But Tertullian is not representative of all that is said at this time period. But if that's all you know, then you think, oh, the church must have been terrible for women. And if you think that the church is terrible for women, well, then how do you end up with Julian of Norwich and her beautiful theology? So I really wanted to explore what was what was going on then. And I collaborated with Dr. Amy Brown Hughes, who is a theologian that works more with post-Constantine time period. And I tend to handle the pre-Constantine period, more the age of the martyrs. So we were a great pair to kind of look at women in these earliest centuries. And what we tried to do is just give a balanced picture of this time period, showing how women had agency to influence and also being realistic. Let um, There was also certainly some patriarchy or sexism that the women had to had to deal with. Well, as Doug has said, uh, at the beginning of the show, it is International Women's Month. And so we want to talk uh, with you specifically about women in scripture, uh, for one. And so I'm curious to know if you have a favorite woman or favorite women of, uh, of the Bible or of the New Testament, and or if you can tell us some women who aren't really well known, maybe in scripture or misunderstood in scripture. I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about specific women in scripture. Sure. Well, I mentioned the Canaanite woman. That's Matthew 15. We don't know her name. Mark talks about her as the um, Syrophoenician woman. Mark's language is more accurate geographically. Matthew calling her the Canaanite woman is kind of labeling her, highlighting for the reader that this was an arch enemy of, of the ancient Israelites. So there's a religious dynamic going on here with Mark. You'd have to know that she comes from the Gentile land. No, she's a Gentile. But I find her tenacity in approaching Jesus, 
her theological astuteness, that here she is a pagan, and yet she claims he's son of David, he's Lord, he's, uh, she seems to me like a religious seeker who, though pagan, is recognizing the limitations of her upbringing. And and also in, in that context, she would have had the upper hand, her people would have had the upper hand over Jews. She could have looked down her nose at Jews, including Jesus, and think, you know, I'm not I'm not going to approach them. But her desire for her daughter to be healed and her belief somehow in this Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, I'd love to sit down with her and say, how, how did you arrive at that point? I know people talk about her desperation, and I get that. But I feel like there's also theology going on with her that this this isn't just, I mean, Jesus says that he, he senses he knows her faith. And so it's not a last chance, let me try this and see. She demonstrates great faith. And so, yeah, I'd love to get her backstory. I think I'd love to talk more also with Deborah, the struggles that she faced, including uh, taking Israel to war, having to just lead the people in that way. What did she face? She obviously, like any leader, would have had self-doubts. So how did she you know, deal with that? Yeah. So I, I would say those would be a couple of, of women that maybe aren't talked about a lot, because at least with the Canaanite woman, she's unnamed. So it's hard to make her a character that way. Yeah. And I have to say, okay, I wouldn't mind asking a few questions to the quote unquote Jezebel that's mentioned in Revelation and say, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever get a chance to meet her, but I'd love to know what went wrong. You know, how, how was it that someone could lead a church in the wrong uh, direction? So, you know, if you got a do-over, what would you have changed? You know, sometimes failed characters can be interesting to discover, like I say, what went wrong. <laughs> so I'm not admiring her, but I, I, I would find it interesting. Dr. Koch, you're mostly a Bible scholar, of course, but uh, you're also something of a church historian. And I am a church historian. And everybody who's listening to this podcast now can identify women in church history, particularly recent church history, who have been influential in their lives. But what about some women in church history that might not be well known by our listeners? Uh, you have any favorites? And, and then really importantly, why does this matter? Why does it matter today that we're having this conversation about women in the Bible, women in church history? What's a practical takeaway for listeners uh, with respect to this kind of focus, this emphasis on paying attention to the women God has used over the course of the history of redemption? Well, and let me answer that second part first, maybe. There's a phrase go, uh, that I've heard recently, you can be what you can see. And I think by highlighting the historical contributions of women, it helps women today to feel like, I have a history. I have a place. I helped write the the experiences of the church. I contributed to the it, its identity. I yeah, I I have I have a place here because I have a history here. I think humans understand who we are even just personally, we understand who we are because of where we've been or you know, our childhood memories inform how we understand ourselves today and who we are today. And so if we take that kind of personal microcosm and we 
expand that to think about the church as an organism, how we understand ourselves today is tied to how we understand where we've been. And if we ignore the, the role or we, uh, or we just don't pay attention to, ignore might sound like we're really purposefully doing that. But if we, if we just don't even think about the fact that women were dying for the faith in the second century and their martyr's death was seen as a model for the excellent Christian, whether that Christian was man or a woman, that somehow says to me, well, Lynn, if, you know, back in 203, there were women whose testimony led to their death. I am a Christian, cost them their life. Well, you know, that's part of, of, of your heritage. And so you can persevere too. <laughs> so I would say that's why I think it's very important. And secondly, and so it's important for me as a woman, it's important, I think, for men to also recognize that we got here, the church was built not simply on bishops making pronouncements at, at councils or, or generating creeds, but on the liturgy that was formed um, in part around martyrs' deaths, uh, the, the education that was in, in part sponsored by wealthy women who established um, monasteries for men and for women to continue with translation and the creation of commentaries and that sort of thing. Um, it's uh, building um, churches, these, these women that could build churches or other sites of worship that that allowed for the congregations to come together, allowed for liturgy to be created and sustained. Women were just doing a lot together with men in, in each generation for the church uh, to grow and to thrive. So I think it's important for men to not imagine that this idea of women involvement in the church is somehow a modern you know, 20th century question, but rather it's just, it was just natural in the early centuries um, for women and men together, uh, they, they helped build the church. So I mentioned martyrs, and I, I would say the, um, there are some key female martyrs that really shaped the imagination and the identity of the church after the age of the martyrs. And one important one is Thecla, whose story is found in the Acts of Paul and Thecla. She does amazing things, amazing miracles happen to her. And it's hard to, I, I don't want to say that this is kind of an historical document like what we have in the book of Acts in, in our Bible, right? This is a separate, this, this book isn't in the Bible, but her character was honored for centuries after because she testified to a life of complete abandonment in her love of God. And she she also decided to, to pursue an ascetic lifestyle. She remained a virgin. She didn't marry. And that life of devotion, giving up her life of wealth to, to have a life totally devoted uh, to God, as I say, it just it was a model that so many of the Christians grabbed hold of, including a woman named Macrina the Younger, who would have lived in the 300s. And she talks about how she was given a special name by her mother, and her special name was Thecla. So this Thecla that was generations earlier continued, her story continued to inspire uh, women and men. So I, I think a, a Thecla 
knowing about a, a Thecla and her devotion, I taught on, on this last summer, and one of the students talked with their daughter, who I think was in um, junior high or maybe the early early high school age. And for Halloween this past year, her daughter dressed up as Thecla and went around and had a, yeah, so cool, had a little card describing the uh, briefly a story of Thecla. And I thought, how how awesome is that? Yeah, but that's, you know, one of our, the the saints, if I could use that in kind of a generic sense, one of the people who led a faithful life that we can model our lives on. Yeah. I have a two-part question for you. Um, You mentioned the new programs that you're developing at Northern Seminary, and I know that you already are admitting and training women um, for ministry as, uh, you know, we do here at Beeson. And so my two-part question is this, um, why is theological education important for women in ministry? Why does the church need or profit from women with theological education? And then secondly, what was your path into theological um, education and into ministry? What did that look like uh, for you? As I talk to women, I hear that finding that path is sometimes difficult. And so I wonder if you can also share a little bit of your own story. I grew up in a nominal Methodist home. So we went to church sporadically. Uh, My parents were very good nominal Christians, right? Very moral. Um, But when I was in high school, I heard the message of the gospel, as did my mom, from a Methodist minister who in that time would be, you know, born again would be the language um, that would be used. And and so I, I really accepted the gospel as as my own faith commitment then, as did my mom and a few years later, my father. But the church that I was a part of had trouble imagining women teaching adults and so, or adult men. And I never felt called to be a pastor. I really wanted to get into education and I loved the Bible and the world of the Bible. And that's what I wanted to study. So I always felt like I wanted to go into studying scripture from that academic sense and went on for my PhD right out of um, undergrad. I didn't go to seminary because my because I wanted to study the Bible and my church would not write a letter of recommendation for me to study that. So I would say that theme of a woman shouldn't study the Bible at um, at that high level because it's not appropriate and a woman shouldn't be in peer-to-peer conversation with men about biblical or theological things is <laughs> probably a constant noise in the background of in, in my life. It would emerge in different ways. Just a pretty regular, why are you here? What are, what are you doing? And I, I would say that theme is a, a pretty familiar theme in the women that I talk with who want to study the Word of God more and more deeply, but they have this sense from their church or from family members, sometimes family members who are um, also pastors in churches, that it's just not suitable. It's just not the thing that a female should do. And so that's been the thing that I've needed to push through. And I feel what Beeson does and what Northern does is try to create a space where women can, without questioning their desires, can give a space for women to explore the scripture, to grow in their knowledge of the word, and to feel that that that's okay. 
that there's an affirmation that as a woman, you can do this. You could also ask, why, why is it important for me to know the story of my African brothers and sisters or my Korean brothers and sisters? You know, I, I see in, in their church communities an, an aspect of worship, an understanding of prayer, a, a, an appreciation for the healing power of God that in my white middle-class upbringing just didn't raise to that level in my church experience. So I think if we know that, and we know that we're enriched, even at, we're enriched when we hear others' stories and how God has blessed them, how God has kept them in the midst of trial, it seems to me pretty natural then that that we would want to hear each other's stories. Men would want to know from women and women would want to know from men. And of course, women are always <laughs> learning from men because most pastors are men. But I mourn the fact that there seems to be some kind of threat for feeling of, of threat for a man to learn from a woman, that somehow that is threatening to him being a man. And I feel badly for that because I, I don't think that's what scripture is indicating. I think there's much more of a collaborative partnership that, that I see in the pages of scripture and yeah, and, and kind of a fearless enjoying of where, uh, where the church can go as men and women together work together in building the church. That's a good word. Lynn, we like to end these podcast interviews uh, with our guests on a note of spiritual edification for our listeners. We like to ask our guests what the Lord has been teaching you these days uh, that you might be willing to share with us uh, as an encouragement to those who are listening to us now. So what's what's God teaching you these days? I, I would say that uh, God has been showing me how, and, and this is a lesson I can learn over and over again, but how all-sufficient he is. The, the all-sufficiency includes answering prayers of my friends who are maybe in dire financial straits or are facing health issues. And it's like the Lord will answer this prayer in a way that, man, just never even occurred to me. And it's so much bigger and more glorious than I had imagined. And so uh, I, I'm kind of a fixer. I love to, there's a problem. Yeah. Let me, let me go ahead and fix it. And, and, you know, I can bring that attitude to God. Hey God, here's a problem. Let's fix it this way. <laughs> and, and I'm just learning again, his all sufficiency, learning to, to rest in that, to be in that, uh, and to, uh, rejoice in that. So coupled with that self-sufficiency, then, uh, uh, or the God being all sufficient as opposed to me relying on my own like self-sufficiency is then this note of gra of gratitude uh, and thankfulness um, because it's just it's freeing to realize that God has it all. He's all sufficient. And so um, that note of gratitude is um, has also been highlighted for me in the recent weeks. Mm, that's a great word for all of us fixers who are active in ministry. <laughs> uh, listeners, you have been hearing Lynn Coick. She is Provost and Dean of Academic Affairs at Northern Seminary, which is near Chicago. She is a good friend of Kristen's and of mine as well. We are grateful to her for her time this afternoon. We're grateful to you for tuning in. We love you. We're praying for you. And we say goodbye for now. 
been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.